0: This is the Calvary Bible Church Podcast. Thanks for listening in today. We're praying this message encourages you. Learn more about Calvary and join us online each Sunday for services at calvarybible.com. I had been married less than 24 hours, and my new bride and I were on our flight to our honeymoon. A couple hours into the flight, the captain came on and informed everyone that we were going to experience what he called significant turbulence. As the bumps began to happen, Kristen reached for my hand and with a death grip, began to break all the bones in my hand and told me, I really don't like turbulence. Now, this is new information to me. I never thought my wife would not like turbulence. I mean, she has flown all over the United States. She's flown to Hawaii. She's even flown over to Europe. How could my new bride have any aversion to turbulence? Well, she really didn't like it. And so I said to her, sweetheart, it's all going to be fine. What's the worst that can happen? To which she said, we could die. To which I replied, Oh, that's not the worst that could happen. We could go down in a fiery wreck. I could be maimed. Everyone else lost. You and I would have to feed ourselves off of terrible airline food while people searched for us. And then we would have to find a, a volleyball and call it Wilson and be stranded for, for years out there. And as my sarcasm is not helping her calm down, I think the Lord and his kindness sent us an angel. He probably figured, if I just let Thomas go on like this, the marriage would be over before it began. But the lady sitting right next to Kristen, who overheard our conversation, chimed in. What was amazing is this woman was familiar with the structural integrity of the aircraft. She was familiar with how airplanes are built, and specifically the aircraft we were on, of all of its endurances, it's structural integrity, how it's designed to actually go through turbulence and, and flex and move and, and how the captain knows what is too much or what elevations to go to. And so she began to reassure Kristen that the integrity of the plane that we were in was sufficient To go through the turbulence. Well, the turbulence came and, you know, babies are flying up and people's drinks are crashing everywhere. And it really was some significant turbulence. But with the confidence that she had instilled, it came and it went and we were okay. There's something about going through hard times that's turbulent. And as we go to our study in James, James is writing to these new Christians. Those who have deposited their faith in the vehicle of Jesus Christ, their, their life is tucked into Christ and they're experiencing trials. And as these trials hit, James is going to remind them of the structural integrity of God himself, of the one in whom they have deposited their life within, that he is able to carry them through their troubles, their turbulence, their trials. Because in the middle of hardship, in the middle of these trials, instead of enduring them, we can try to escape them. In an effort to find relief from the hardship, we can actually abandon our faith through temptations. So this is where James begins to turn. We've already seen that he encourages us to stand firm. He encourages us when we don't know what to do to seek God's wisdom. And now he warns us to not fall into temptation, Temptation is not sin in itself. Jesus was tempted and he did not sin. Temptation is not sin. Temptation is the solicitation to sin. And all sin at its core belief is actually unbelief. Or maybe the way to say it is all sin in essence is unbelief. It's a stopping to trust God that he is sufficient that he will provide that his ways or purposes are right. We stop trusting him and start trusting something else. And so as you might be thinking about the trials that you're currently in, or perhaps as you anticipate trials coming, I want you to, I want to take you back to James and look at this warning that he gives us. In order to stand firm, let us not fall into temptation. So grab your James journals if you have them open up your Bible, fire up your iPad. Just let's all get to James chapter one and we'll pick it up where we left off in verse 12. James says, blessed is the man or blessed is the woman, blessed is the person who remains steadfast under trials. We already talked about steadfastness, this perseverance, endurance, this spiritual grit. Blessed is the one who remains steadfast, stands firm. For when he or she has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Like, this is a really big deal because there's a special blessing for you if you remain steadfast, if you go through the trial. Remember when he said that we go through the trial, that there's going to have a full effect, our formation in our faith, that will actually produce more joy as we experience a more complete and mature perfect faith that God has for us. And so there's this blessing that we look forward to that keeps us standing firm, that if we stand firm, if we don't try to escape or abandon this trial, if we stand firm, there will be this promise of the crown of life. And so we want to stand firm. And so what is it that James warns us about that we are susceptible to that will actually erode our steadfastness? Well, it's temptations. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted in this trial, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And he warns them, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. I mean, you can just see the title here. This is familial language. The ones I love. Don't be deceived in the middle of a trial to fall into temptation and fall away from the crown of life. Fall away from life itself and experience death. And, and when we experience temptation, James just quickly informs us, it's not God who's doing the tempting God tempts no one. He can't be tempted by evil. The Bible tells us who the tempter is. The tempter is God's adversary, the devil himself. And in Jesus's temptation, it was the devil himself that came and tempted Jesus. This is Matthew chapter 4, verse 3. And the tempter came and said to him, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. He's the tempter. He's the one that is enticing, luring, bringing you, drawing you away from your confidence and trust in God, in, in trusting the integrity of the vessel that you're in. Paul also calls Satan the tempter. When he's writing to a church in Thessalonica, he says, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. Like, is it growing or have you abandoned it? For fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain, that you wouldn't have this faith growing in you, that you're not being perfected through the trial, that you had abandoned it because the tempter had come. The devil is the tempter. Now, here in James, what's so interesting is he doesn't say that it's the devil who tempts you. He says it's your own desires. You're lured and enticed by your own desires. Now, I think the devil can totally play on that. But it's something within us, our own desires, that lure us away from trusting, having faith, remaining steadfast with God. Now, can you think of an episode early in the Bible where maybe the tempter is part of this deception that lures someone away because of desires? Yeah, page three of the Bible, Genesis chapter three, right? This is Adam and Eve. This is the way it's been, from the beginning, even. So go with me to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Here's the scene. God has created man and woman in his likeness, put them in a garden, and said, be industrious. Bring forth its good fruit. There's just one tree that you are not have to eat of, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Leave that tree alone. It's not for you. And then, see what happens. Now, the serpent, that's this tempter, was more crafty than any other beast of the field. And the Lord God had made... He said to the woman, did God actually say, right? This is where the deception comes in. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. See that the result is going to be death. From sin comes death. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired, to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Death comes. Death in a relationship with God, with one another, with self, with creation. Death has arrived through sin. But do you see the parallels here? See, when James writes his short letter, he's writing to a community of Jewish believers And there's some assumed knowledge with this community that James has that they would know these stories, that they would know their Hebrew Bibles. They would know this story of desire, of being lured and enticed, and then sin birthing death. This is the result of what sin does for us. It actually brings us to the place of death. Maybe it's death in a marriage. Maybe it's death in relationships. Maybe it's death within our own selves, of death within the, the world that we experience. It's that separation. First and foremost, it's death between God and us. It's that separation that brings death. See, God is life, and to be separated from God is to be outside of life, is to be experiencing death. And there are so many ways that we experience this as sin comes into each of our lives, And so you can go back into James and James says, this is the pattern, is that the temptation comes even from our own desires where we're lured and enticed to satisfy them apart from God. We're lured and enticed to satisfy our desires apart from God. See, I think these desires aren't even sin either. We all have desires that we want to be satisfied. We have a desire, especially in trials, we have a desire to be comforted. We have a desire to have wisdom and know what's what to do. We have a desire for securities. We have all kinds of even fleshly desires I think are really good that God wires us for. That We have desires to be loved. We have a desire for identity. We have desires for sexual satisfaction. The question is, where do we get these desires fulfilled? Where do we get them satisfied? See, even in the Genesis story that I think James is referring to in the same language, What does Satan say that that fruit will make you like God? And maybe there's a desire in there to be like God. Is that desire wrong? I don't think so. Because Adam and Eve should have said, we're already made in his likeness. You see this? God said, we're going to make man and woman in our likeness. They're called the imago Dei, the image of God. And here the deceiver comes. That's the deception. Hey, you're not like God. You're missing this likeness. And Adam and Eve should have said, no, we actually have that satisfied. Our identity that you're trying to entice me with is satisfied in God. He made us. And so that's in the middle of temptation or in the middle of trials where temptation comes in is can you really trust God anymore? He's kind of holding out on you. See, if, if God was really good, would this all be happening to you? Is the vehicle that you've deposited your life in really able to take you through the turbulence of life? Well, James wants you to know, wants his readers to know that God is structurally secure for their believers. And so he begins to unpack Who God is. It's like the stewardess sitting next to my wife. Let me tell you how this thing is engineered. Let me tell you about this plane. James says, well, let me tell you about God. The God in whom you can trust through your trials. So let's look at a few ways in which James describes God. We've already seen a couple as we've studied. First, that he's the generous giving without reproach God. We saw that last week. That's who he is. You're in trouble. He desires that you would ask so that he would give. We've already seen that he can't be tempted by evil. Look down at verse 13. God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So God's not the tempter, which is helpful to know. Because if we're to resist temptation, and the temptation's from God, then we need to resist him. But James says he's not the one tempting you. And so, because he's not the source of your temptation... He's the source of your strength. Run to him. Go to him. Verse 17, he says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. This title, Father of lights, is from this heavenly prayer that God is both creator and redeemer, beginning and end, and all good and perfect gifts come from him. And so if we are thinking that we have a desire for good gifts, that are somehow apart from God, that somehow there's a source that has the really good gifts that satisfy our desires, but they're not in God or in God's plan, that's deception. For every good and perfect gift that satisfies, every good and perfect gift that you desire to satisfy your comforts, your securities, your identity, that comes from the Lord. That comes from God. God's the giver of all gifts. There's not another source outside of God. And that's where I think the tempter comes in and says, hey, you can't trust him. Let me tell you about another source where you can get these things satisfied. But no, James tells us every good and perfect gift that you want, the happiness you want, I think the joy that you want, the completion and wholeness that you want, all that gift, all those gifts, they come from the Father, from a heavenly Father. James 17, he goes on and says, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ, God, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Why is that good news? It's because in the middle of trials, deception says you can't trust God anymore. Something has changed. And James tells us, no, he can't change. His moods don't change. He's not like an earthly father that you have to go ask for something and you're hoping he's in the right mood. No, God doesn't change. Those promises he promised us are good yesterday, today, and forever. His desire to give and to care and to give wisdom, that's a promise yesterday, today, and forever. God won't change. And so if somebody's coming to you and saying, see, God's, God changed. He, he doesn't think about you the same way. God forgot about you. God doesn't love you anymore. You say, nope, nope, nope. The scriptures tell us that there is no change in God. And so his promises do not change. His love for me does not change. His affections do not change. The opportunity for me to go to him does not change. Verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This speaks of his work of salvation. Who initiated it? It was God. It's of his own will which means it's not dependent on if you're doing well or not. His will brought forth this salvation, brought forth the word of truth. This word of truth is the gospel. It was its own desire that he would send us the good news, send us his son of salvation, and that we would be born of Christ, this first fruits of his creature. This is, this is those who are born again, those who are in the family of God, who experienced salvation. That was his doing for us. See, this is the, the character of God that James is reminding the people that you can trust him. That it's deception that comes and says, what you really need, what you really want, which will help satisfy you, which will give you the relief that you really need is found somewhere else than God. No, we need someone like James who sits next to us in the middle of turbulence and says, the vehicle that you're in is safe and secure. The vehicle you're in is good. The vehicle you're in will not change. The vehicle you're in will carry you through. Why is that so important that we don't fall into temptations? It's because it's no small matter. What's the fruit of falling into temptation and into sin? Is death, right? What's, what's the reward of standing firm through trials? Is the crown of life. So here are the two options. Stand firm and receive the crown of life or fall into sin and experience the consequences of death. It's no small matter. It's why I think it's so important that we're not deceived. Do not be deceived. And all of sin, all of temptation is deceptive. It's like a fishing hook. That's what they're called lures, right? And we try to disguise them to look like it's something the fish really wants. So they become hooked, and then we reel them in, and then they're gutted. And that's a picture of the reality of what's happening, is do not be deceived. Do not be lured away and experience death. The Proverbs are filled with this warning. Solomon, who's teaching his son about the deceptions of sin, this is Proverbs chapter 7 verse 21. He's writing to his son and he's talking about this adulterous woman. If he was talking to his daughter, perhaps he'd use this adulterous man, but he just says when or chapter 7 verse 21 with much seductive speech she persuades him and her smooth talk she compels him. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter. Or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. I don't know what's luring you right now, but you need eyes to see that it might cost you life. That's why it's so important that we stand firm, stand fast in the midst of trials and not fall into temptation. Now, I want to be as helpful as possible. And so I was, this, as I'm wrestling with this text and thinking about my own life and my desires in my own heart and how I've been lured to fall into sin, what are ways in which we combat temptations? And I just have six to offer. There's nothing magical about the number six. I was just thinking uh, through a few that I've been coached by and some things that I would love to share with you. So here are six ideas that you could actually have practical ways to fight against temptation. The first one is this, that you would remember. That you would remember what God has said. Remember God's word. When Jesus fought against the temptation of the devils, he always quoted scriptures. He he remembered what God's word had said. And so two things, maybe three things that you have to remember in God's word is first this, that there's a way out. So many times we feel like there's just, this is impossible. There's no way out. But God's word tells us this is, Found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Remember that God says there is a way out. There is a way out. I believe for you, no matter how deep you're in, there is still a way out if you follow him. And so in the middle of temptation, remember he said this. Look for the way out of it, not the way to get into it more. Another thing to remember is that Jesus taught us to pray to the Father, ask for help in the midst of this. Remember when he was teaching his disciples to pray? He he taught them, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's something we should be praying. Lord, let me not fall into temptation. Deliver me from evil. Remember this, that if you have succumbed to temptation and sin is in your life, there is forgiveness for you. It's not the end of the story. Be quick to ask for forgiveness when we fall into sin. Don't let sin sit there and keep you from coming to God. You're quick to ask for forgiveness. And God, he's so kind, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, John tells us, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the first one is is remember. The second is this, is to recognize. Recognize our own weaknesses recognize where in our life that we're prone to sin where are we vulnerable you should know yourself is there certain content that you're susceptible to watching in shows or maybe reading in books to expose yourself to that you know that leads you into a place you don't want to go you should recognize your own weaknesses recognize where you're vulnerable are, are you susceptible to be online late at night shopping and, and spending money trying to fill these desires with money that you don't have or going to the malls or going to these stores that you know you shouldn't be at? Recognize where you're vulnerable. Third one is remove. Remove all the possible temptations you can. Eliminate them from your life. And so if you recognize where you're vulnerable, where you're susceptible, when you're not being tempted tempted, tried to remove those environments. So I know for me, it's going to be really honest with you. I know I'm most susceptible to temptation in unstructured free time, unstructured private free time. And so when I see it on my calendar, like, wow, I've got nothing happening. Nobody's around. I know that I should probably schedule something. I should probably let my wife know. I should probably let other people know what's going on. I don't want to fall into unstructured, private, free time. I know I can be tempted. And so I eliminate it before I get there. What is it for you? Where do you know that you are susceptible? Because you recognize your own weaknesses. Are you susceptible online? Are you susceptible going to certain places, being around certain people? We should remove them to the best of our ability from our life. Fourth is this, is rest. If you haven't figured it out, they're all going to start with R. Is rest, especially through trials. When we're most tired, we're most susceptible. It's like we don't even have the energy to fight and stand firm. And so rest is really important. Remember when Elijah was faithful through the trial, Mount Carmel, and he saw God's works, and then he heard of Jezebel and he ran and he was terrified. He said, I just, I want to give this up. He had suicidal thoughts. What did God do for him? He said, Rest, sleep, I'm going to feed you. So sleep, eat, walk, rest. We need rest. So many times in my own temptation, and I I feel like I'm falling into it and I lose the battle. I didn't lose the battle then. You know when I lost the battle? It was probably two nights prior when I stayed up way too late reading or binging some show and not getting sleep and not resting. I don't even have the physical strength. To resist temptations, so rest. Find time to rest. Go to bed. Five is relate. Don't isolate. You want to have relationships. You want to relate to other people, maybe who are going through similar temptations, maybe you're going through similar trials. Share what's going on. If you have a propensity to continually to isolate into privacy, that's breeding ground for temptation. That's breeding ground for desires and to be enticed and lured. Don't keep trying to isolate and privatize your world. This is why for me, like my wife, my kids, they all know my cell phone passcode. There's no privacy there. Do you know why? Because I know what I'm capable of and I'm a righteous man. I know apart from the Holy Spirit and from God's enduring strength, what I could do. And so I don't try to find more isolated places, more private places in my life. I try to relate, be open, let other people know what's going on. Share my struggles with them. And so don't isolate. Relate. Last one is this, is resist. Is just resist. Like with all your strength, resist. Scriptures tell us, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Resist. Put on the full armor of God that you might stand firm. No matter how hard it looks, no matter how hard it feels, you know the consequence. Resist with all your strength. And so maybe these six things of remember, recognize, remove, rest, relate, and resist will maybe help you not fall into sin the next time you're tempted. See, James is a very practical book for us. And He's telling us in the middle of trials, we know that we're susceptible to temptation. Temptations get us out of trials so fast, but as a Christian, we want to get through them, that we would have its full effect, a formational good that would produce more joy in us, a more complete and mature faith, and at the end, receive the crown of life. And It's only possible if we stand fast. Let me pray for you. God, I thank you so much for... A church of people that want to gather around your word and be informed by your word. And so, Lord, we just pray that we would have a trust in you. That as James articulates your character, the structural integrity of who you are, that we would trust you through the turbulent parts of our life. And Father, no matter what temptations my friends are going through, I pray that right now you would give them the strength to endure. Give them wisdom to endure. Give them knowledge to endure. Give them the ability to see what you promise a way out. And so, Father, I commit them to you. I commit myself to you that we would be formed into the likeness of your son, Jesus Christ, as we stand fast through our trials, trusting you, the heavenly father who loves us so much. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.